This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. This slightly gloomy Tuesday, just about to get right in. As usual, it's me, Kingsley Kipuri, and my partner in crime, Greg Nicholson, for the next hour. Greg just bought a new car, so driving up here, it felt like we were in a music video. Uh, how does it feel, man? Feeling good? Yeah, man, just rolling with the windows down. <laughs> That's it, man. Driving slow, music loud. <laughs> Absolutely. I wouldn't mention that I took the how train first. I'm feeling quite, you know, feeling like sort of the, the shitty, the shitty half of this of this partnership. Well, man, we have to we have to just keep the inequalities like clear. <laughs> Even though, that's such a wonderful, beautiful quote in modern day South Africa. <laughs> Let's all keep the inequalities clear. That's that's it, folks. State of the nation. Anyway. Maybe we should just get into the show. Yeah, I think maybe we should, man. This is getting really bad. Really, really excited for the next hour. Um, just paging through the book we're about to dig in through, and I was so excited. So I'll start off by introducing the authors, and I've got a long, long list of accolades here. First off is Kevin Blue, award-winning journalist whose previous book I think is one of Greg's favorites, Ways of Staying, won the 2010 South African Literary Award for Literary Journalism. Literary Journalism. Just so, so amazing to have you on. Kevin, you haven't been here before. I haven't met you before, so it's lovely to finally meet you, man. It's great to be here. Thanks, man. Okay, fantastic. Um, Next off is Richard Poplack, somebody thankfully we have had on before, becoming a bit of a a regular. Also an award-winning journalist, author of quite, quite a number of books, including a graphic novel and two works of nonfiction. And one of my sort of favorite books of the past couple of years, Collection of Essays, Until Julius Comes. Richard Poplack, welcome again. It's always great to be here. Thanks, Jens. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, just to dig into your most recent book that you two have written, and it launches tomorrow, called Continental Shift, A Journey into Africa's Changing Fortunes. And I was just so sort of touched by what's sort of on the blurb on the back, and it says, if you don't mind me reading, Africa is failing, Africa is succeeding, Africa is betraying its citizens, Africa is a place of starvation, corruption, disease. African economies are soaring faster than any on earth. Africa is squandering its bountiful resources. Africa is a roadmap for global development. Africa is turbulent. Africa is stabilizing. Africa is doomed. Africa is the future. Kings, you read that a little bit like a sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for stealing my sort of moment. But really, even just reading that now, it sort of reads like a poem and it, it almost, it's, it's actually touching. Just this, this contradiction that we all, you know, as Africans sort of live with and feel every day of this tremendous hope and, and this tremendous being on the cusp of, of rising and, and being on the cusp of something great, but simultaneously feeling like where there's so much doom and despair. <sighs> so what on earth made you two guys want to delve into this amount of contradiction and murkiness and confusion to try and figure it out? Well, you know, I, I think if we'd understood the task that lay ahead of us when we when we sort of set out on this uh, on this whole adventure many many years ago, I think we we may have reconsidered. Um, you know, once you start to delve into the African contradictions, um, it becomes really really confounding. And the more you know or think you know, the less you actually do know. Um, and and these contra- these contradictions really do start to consume you. Um, and uh, in, in many ways they did. Mm. Um, the, the, the manuscript that you're holding in your hands right now is, is not the book that we, that we set out to write by any means. Uh, we set out to write this grand sort of literary travelogue that would um, be one of the great sort of literary travelogues of, of all time and would be personal and, and, and have all these, these, these sort of grand literary elements to it. Mm. Um, but, but that defeated us very, very quickly. Um, and well, actually, it defeated us. It defeated us quite slowly. <laughs> we we hung on to that idea for a while. Um, the, the point, I guess, is that is that you know, as the process sort of unfolded, the contradictions started to reveal themselves and started to started to sort of hit us head on. And, and that's when the, the the manuscript that you have in your hands right now sort of started to take shape. We actually had to start to listen to all of these different Africas. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because I remember I've been reading some of the sort of little sort of articles that you've both published over the past couple of years. I think since about 2012, uh, mm. just little snippets of the book. 2010, I think. 2010, the first, yes. yeah. And I've seen sort of the introduction and the narrative change. There was a mention of 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 profiling the impact of China and Chinese investment on the continent, and that seems to have sort of changed over time. So I'm curious, what 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 different forms has the 
mission taken and 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 how did it become what it is now well well the first form um we're quite embarrassed to say <laughs> i think <laughs> um we we thought we could tell the story of africa or a story of africa mm. that let me qualify that a story of africa by having a look at um the waning white communities in uh you know the ex-colonial communities and and trying to tease out of where those communities were and what their struggles were, some sort of broader narrative about the continent as a whole. Um, to our relief and credit, uh, well, to our relief, to our publisher's credit, <laughs> um, he, was, he, he sort of said, no, guys. Mm. I, I, think, I think the reason we went in there is because we knew going in how, how, how big it was. And we felt that maybe this would be a way in where we could start with the familiar and then move into the strange. Um, so that was the first iteration. But actually, there was something before that. And we need to go back to where it actually started. Um, and it started when we did a road trip uh, through Namibia in December 2006. We were on assignment for a pair of travel magazines. And uh, we found ourselves in uh, Rundu. Uh, Namibian border town on the Kavango River, and we were, we were able to to get across the river into Angola. It was 2006, four years after the end of the Angolan Civil War, and we were taken on a tour of of this town through a uh, former member of the MPLA, who had put down his rifle, you know, a couple of years years before in 2002, and he started pointing out all the areas of growth. Mm. So, you know, a city that had 7,000 people during the war was now 35,000 people. There were goods in all the shops. Um, there was electricity in the town. The, there was a school again. Uh, there was a hotel. The hotel had a bar. There was a restaurant that was going to open up soon. There was DSTV. DSTV was, uh, you know, springing up all over town. And uh, we wanted to know whether this idea of growth actually translated into development. We, we, we were properly taken by the idea of development. What was development and what did it mean? And, and that's where the book started. And we, you know, that's, that, that, that's in the opening chapter as, as, as sort of an epiphany. Um, the writing proposals and trying to find, find a line through came later. And through, you know, white out and then the Chinese and then to the book we have today with, I would say, the equivalent of three or four full-length novels on the cutting room floor. Yeah, easily. Uh, yeah. I think we pr probably have written a million words hmm. um, over the course of this process. Um, and what we ended up with was something was something really interesting. I, I mean, I, I want to get back for the moment to, to all of these contradictions hmm. that, that, that are sort of encapsulated in the blurb hmm. um, and the beauty um, of those contra contradictions. I love what you said. That that's kind of what we live with as as Africans, yeah. uh, regardless of which end of the spectrum we happen to be or what our color or ethnicity happens to be. Um, reaching those contradictions took many, many, many thousands of miles and many, many, many thousands of words to sort of arrive at a place where we felt comfortable trying to package all of the information and all of the encounters that we'd experienced mm. um, into into a, into a way that we understood it and into a way that hopefully uh, the, the readers end up understanding it as well. Kevin, I just want to take you, take you back to something you just mentioned, and I think it's in the, in the introduction here, in the town of Calais, yes. on the Angolan side, yes. where you guys write, the town was the first among many signs we would encounter of Africa's what? We were at a loss for the perfect descriptive noun, or was it a verb? And then you describe how later, over warm beers, you're sitting there and you decide to dedicate years of your lives to finding out what this is. Can you just take us back to that sort of moment, and that feeling of what, obviously, throughout the book, you return to this sort of idea of trying to find what that sort of descriptor or that noun is. But can you take us back to that moment and what made you guys sort of think about this? That's, that's a profound question. And uh, it would always take place at the end of the day. We'd have our notebooks. Um, there would always be something in our notebooks. We'd never have a day when our notebooks were empty, even if the interviews we were chasing or the stories we were chasing didn't pan out for that day. So we were observing, and we were, we were asking the question of Africa's what? You'll notice it's not the question of Africa rising. I mean, 
that to us seemed like a bumper sticker from the start. So that that white is everywhere. And we would come to the end of the day and it would be five o'clock and we'd have a couple of beers. Richard used to call that special happy time. I still um, do. He still does. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like a whole other game of winding down. That's, that's for the next show. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we would take, you know, we would take very seriously what, what we had seen and what we had encountered and how our lens as white Joburg boys shifted the focus. And and if we had to take ourselves out of the focus, if it was even possible to just be there and observe what, um, how we might have changed what we were observing, that sort of effect, um, what it was like to be the characters that we had encountered that day. What, what was their lived life? What was their lived experience? How could we best tell that story? Mm-hmm. That was the what. Did you feel going into this project or at that time that this idea of what it's like to be, just existence and lived reality, wasn't being told by other authors and by the media? Um, going into this project, you know, you know, when we sold this proposal, it was 2010. Um, we, we're talking about almost an entirely different intellectual landscape, certainly in this country. And I think that counts for the rest of, uh, the rest of Africa as well. You know, there'd been all, all sorts of talk, e- even then, about the sort of traditional African book written by your traditional conflict white journalists in their flak jackets uh, who go out, um, go into conflict zones, report on the conflict zones, and it's a very specific type of lens. Um, it's a lens that we absolutely didn't want to look through. And, the, and the, uh, w- this was from the start. There was no way we were going to be the, the regular flak jacket guys and go through it. So, so we, we, tried to, we tried to set up a whole bunch of different type of sensors um, around this project that would allow us to, to sort of uh, encounter uh, all of the places and all of the people mm-hmm. uh, we were meeting in, 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 in what we hoped would be a different way. Um, and that ended up being a four or five year process the setting up of those sensors and reaching a point where we felt that we were looking through Africa. Listen, we're still white boys. We're still very privileged and we're still from this environment. But at the end of the day, we pushed ourselves, I believe as far as we possibly could have gone, Mm. gone to use our observer status as lightly as possible and to uh, sort of tease out the encounters we had as gently as possible. The book doesn't open. In, in a war zone, um, the book opens in, in Angola after after the war. Um, the first chapter is about the middle class in Namibia. Uh, no one gets shot, you know. So that was very very important to us uh, to to sort of go into this process and try to start a book about Africa where everybody is a nerd to reading about you know bloodshed off the bat. How could we start differently? I love as well that that first chapter starts with a guy and his strange health machine that mm. Chinese that I still can't quite understand but it's such a fascinating little sort of introduction to not a little introduction but a, but a very very thorough um, introduction to some of the book's themes mm-hmm. um, in told in a fascinating way in a great story yeah that's that's actually the story of a, of a young gentleman named Simeon uh, Bernardino uh, a guy we met by chance in, in Namibia and what he seemed to exemplify for us was this was this hustling class that you meet all over Africa. Um, you know, a young man who was determined to change his circumstances and, and the circumstances of his family. And what he'd done was sort of get involved in what we would call here probably a pyramid scheme. And he was very aware of, of, of the fact that this was a pyramid scheme uh, with a Chinese company called Tien's, which is a healthcare company that has a very similar model to Amway. Uh, you know, he was totally self-aware aware of this. He was not scammed by Tien's in any way. And he really was changing his 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 uh, family circumstances and his own circumstances. They were making real money, um, and we sort of track how how Simeon's life tracks that of the changing notion of an African middle class, which to us was a very very important story. What is the African middle class? Who is the African middle class? What is a middle class? Uh, all of these very interesting definitions, mm. w- which are defined by outside institutions, what is lived life like 
mm-hmm. someone who was considered middle class on this continent. Mm. So I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but we should tell the listeners that I think it was you've done about 600 interviews for this book. Yeah. And you've traveled to 16 countries. Am 16 I right? African countries uh, plus uh, China and India. Mm-hmm. It makes 18, yeah. How, how did you guys decide which countries to go to? So it sort of is there in the introduction. It was a, a mixture of happenstance and, and journalistic science. If we, if we saw a story, mm. if it resonated with our themes, if we thought we could tell it, we, we went forth and did it. Now, there are quite a few really interesting stories that haven't made the book because they didn't fit with the narrative arc. I'd say the most interesting story that hasn't made, made the book is uh, we came across, it was a 300-word article put out by maybe Xinhua um, on a, a young man by the name of Yuning Shen who was putting together a Mandarin Swahili dictionary in uh, Tanzania. And we just knew that we, we were sort of halfway into our travels and mm, research at yeah. the moment, and we just knew this was this was going to be gold. Mm. So we, we we got hold of him, and he said, "Sure, come, pull it." And uh, we went to Stone Town, and we spent a week with him. As he was walking around the island outside of Stone Town, he had two young interns with him from the University of Zanzibar, and uh, his goal was to get 25 words into this dictionary a day. Okay. Now, the problem with uh, translation from Mandarin into, into Swahili is in Swahili, you've got, three di- for example, three different words for hump, and they refer to the different humps on the cattle. In Mandarin, you've only got the hump that is very specifically the camel's hump. And so we were watching and observing his back and forth on mm. how he's going to use Mandarin ideographs to give the picture of these different types of Swahili cattle. He, he got really far. He was a very smart guy, and the story of how he got there was fascinating in itself. He had grown up in Nanjing, in northern mainland, uh, mainland China, and was one of these geniuses who managed to get into the Nanjing Foreign Languages Institute. Yeah. I think one in 20,000 get in. Um, so a genius with languages. And his first trip to southern Ch- uh, China, to Guangzhou, was the first time he had ever encountered a black man. Um, and he just knew he had to learn the language. So he, he, he made himself fluent in Hausa and Swahili through the University of Hamburg within the next two, three years, and then went off to, to put together the dictionary. So the question becomes, why didn't, um, why didn't the story make the book? Mm. Yuning had come across barrier after barrier after barrier, and the major source of his struggle was the fact that he didn't have the buy-in of the Chinese Communist Party. They knew about him. I last year met a um, a former ambassador, and I told him the story of Yuning. He said we knew about Yuning, but Yuning went off on his own, mm. um, and that's not how you do it in China. Now, it doesn't, that, that, that doesn't necessarily ma- matter to us, but his story didn't have an ending. There was no... There was no... There was no climax. There was no climax. Mm. There was no narrative arc. I mean, what, what are we saying with that story, aside from the fact that he has this guy and he doesn't have the backing of the Chinese Communist Party, therefore this doesn't work? I mean, you can do that in a 500-word article. Or else we're telling the story of, 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 of some sort of cultural clash and cultural mm. disconnect, but, yeah, so, I mean... That's all over the world. But, you know, sadly, there are lots of stories like that which we fell in love with, which are on the cutting room floor. Um, I think, you know, countries we went to, you know, yeah. with the intention of writing about. I mean, I mean, I don't know, what, yeah, Zambia. We, we, did, we did long, hard days in, in Zambia <laughs> and did some fantastic work, and the notebooks are great. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that we just couldn't make narratives out of these. What the book ended up being, was this collection of ten essays? Mm. I think uh, I think in the introduction you call it a book of many voyages distilled mm. into ten essays, which yes. I think you put beautifully. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, and that's what it is. It, it's you know we use the the ten best examples that we could mm. of trying to figure out this Africa's what. Um, and, and at the end of the day, we stopped. We had to stop fighting the notebooks because that's what we were doing initially. Initially in the in, in this process was battling the notebooks. We were telling the notebooks what we wanted, 
when, in fact, it was the other way around. The, the notebooks told us what the stories were. We just had to shut up and listen. Um, and so when we had our big break, which I guess was, was in August of 2013, where mm. we quit and we're figuring out how to tell our publishers in the United Jeez. Kingdom and you, here. You quit the whole idea. Quit. You guys were done. This is how done. many years in? How many interviews in? That, year, was, like, you three, know what? that was three years <laughs> since we'd signed the contract. Yeah. Uh, probably two and a half years since we'd blown the advances. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, tens of thousands of <laughs> rand uh, in you know in debt, uh, and we were like, no, we're, we're done. We, work, we quit. Man. This isn't it, this isn't going to work. And then what sort of slowly started to reveal itself to us was was the fact that that the best way to do this was just to get out of the way of of these stories and just let them tell themselves. And so and so the the, the journeys that end up in the in the book. Um, they carry with them all of this other sort of, um, mm-hmm. so, so all of these other journeys that, that they're there. You know, the the passport stamps mean something, um, but we did so much more research and so much more travel and met so many more people than we otherwise would have needed to if we'd kind of understood what we we're getting into in the first place. Jeez, I'm curious how. I mean, instead of talking of you two as one unit, but I mean, you're both. Different people, different styles, both very successful styles based on the on the success of your previous book. So I'm curious about the relationship between you two and the long hours, the different writing styles, different processes and so on. And was that was that ever a thing of clashing of personalities or writing styles or approaches? Yeah, another another profound question. <laughs> um the way we we try to deal with that thing um was to put together a structure that would allow us each to have our own voices. Okay. So there was, we, we stuck for about two years with a structure where there was a K voice, which was me in the first person and an R voice, which was Richard in the first person. And then an omniscient sort of narrator. Um, now, as terrible as that sounds to, to the listener right now, <laughs> it was way worse on the page. <laughs> <laughs> it was just okay. horrific. Okay. Yeah. But it took a little while for us to come around to that right. thing. Yeah, look, I mean, it it was in hindsight. I mean, it is, but the process of 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 working through that, I I, I don't. It, we we haven't really revisited it because okay. it was you know it was painful. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I think now that the book's out and it's there and we're proud of it, mm. we we can talk about what we're actually trying to do there, which which is in answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we thought what that would also facilitate, aside from giving us our own angle on this, was to give different angles on Africa. Um, there the the problem was that maybe our voices weren't different enough. We needed to be way more different. I mean, we are two white Jewish boys we were uh, who born were born in 1973 yeah. <laughs> in Johannesburg. So, yeah. Um, but when it came time to getting the voice that we finally got, it, it was a relatively quick process because we knew we, we let the notebook speak and we just went for the. We went for a median voice. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, I, I, think, I think we're underselling this a little bit. It, it, it's been a profound personal relationship. Um, when you work with someone as closely as we have worked, traveled and done some really, really hard miles together, met a lot of people together. Mm. Um, Th- this book was written in every single way a book written by two people can possibly be written in. It's, you know, been a game of exquisite corpse where Kevin will write a sentence, I'll write a sentence. Uh, it's been a, a case where Kevin's written a chapter, I'll write a chapter, then we revise the chapter, sentence by sentence. At the end of the day, we sat and went through that manuscript together, word for word, comma for comma, and in a really remarkable fashion, it is both of our work. Mm. Um, th- there's no way I could say this is my book or that's my paragraph or my sentence. It's ours. Um, and and, and in, a, in a way, that's just, uh, to me, completely remarkable. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. I was actually going over the parts I've read. Yeah. So I got the book yesterday. So And I've tried to speed through as much as I can. But having read quite a lot of both of your stuff, there were some sentences where I'd try to say, oh, is this Poplack? Is this Bloom at the moment? <laughs> and I'd find myself just sitting there pondering, and I couldn't tell. I'd guess sometimes, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell either way, actually. Uh, I, I think what we went for, again, is this sort of median essayistic voice that you'd find in um, New Yorker, uh, in, in Harper's. LRB. Uh, LRB. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so, so we 
held ourselves to the highest level of journalistic rigor that we possibly could. This book has been fact-checked uh, six an ways from itself, Sunday. Yeah. Um, you know, everything's been meticulously worked on. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, there's notes. So that I think there's about 120 pages of mm-hmm. notes. Um, so, so we just said to ourselves, let's just get through this alive. <laughs> let's put something down on the page. Absolutely. Let's publish it. Let's let it be really, really good. And then let's move on with our lives. <laughs> and uh, yeah, now we can't move on with our lives. What's <laughs> <laughs> it? You're just tuning in. The Daily Maverick Show, Cliff Central. We're sitting down with Richard Poplack and Kevin Bloom on their new book, Fresh Off the Press Continental Shift A Journey into Africa's Changing Fortunes. Greg, you were just about to ask a question, I think. So, the, the styles then that you mentioned are obviously come from foreign publications. And from what I've read of the book, I think it's definitely um, should be read and can be read by insiders, knowing some of these cases and knowing Africa and having followed many of the um, the different narratives on on the continent's developments. But it also, I think, can it's certainly not doesn't exclude uh, people who might just have a bit of an interest who might be overseas or abroad. Oh, so no, no, hundred percent. This is always <laughs> intended for you know. What's the sweet spot when you're mm. writing when you're writing a, a, a book about effectively about geopolitics? The sweet spot is something that both policymakers and punters can read. Mm. Uh, we want someone to be able to pick this up in exclusive books, open it up, and go, "Wow, the prose is beautiful. Um, the stories are interesting. You know, I have no particular interest in African geopolitics, but you know what? I'm going to read this anyways. Mm-hmm. That was certainly something we're shooting for. But at the same time, so many people, high-ranking people on this continent and elsewhere have asked us time and time again, explain all of this to us. And we're like, look, we're, we're, not, we're not those guys. We can offer an explanation. Um, but big-time policymakers, pe- people have said to us, please, we need some help here. Anything we can read on the, the, the subject is going to be helpful. And that was certainly, you know, so, so struggling to find that voice, that, that sort of medium level where your average person with a passing interest in Africa and a policymaker can read it is, you know, it takes, it takes some time. Um, but that's kind of the benefit of, of just rigorous journalism. If your sentences are clean um, and your facts are checked, uh, it ends up the story ends up telling itself. I think I think what was uh, really important here was the time. Actually, um, what was the fact that we'd mm. been looking at this for nine years? So those were the those were the nine years where the Africa Rising narrative sort of peaked and then exploded, mm-hmm. and and it's it's properly exploded this year. All those Goldman Sachs. Um, Analysts, I'll I'll be kind. I'll call them analysts, um, <laughs> who, who who had sort of talked up uh, Africa Rising, um, selling their own book basically, and and we what we saw out there was we saw a bit of Africa Rising in the cities. Maybe I mean Addis Ababa certainly was at ten, you know at ten percent growth rate a year. Um, that that city was under constant construction. But you go a little outside the cities and nobody's standard of living has changed in the last, you know, 10 generations. Um, so I, when these um, politicians and NGO people and, and uh, journalists were like, yeah, that's, that's the story to tell. Um, I, I think the thing that, that served us the best was the fact that it took us so long to finish this mm-hmm. book. Because we managed to get that entire sweep in, and uh, the book looks deeply at the historical and structural reasons for modern scenarios. Um, you're not telling the story of mining in the DRC if you're not going back to King Leopold and the Shikot. Uh You're just not doing it. You're not. You're not telling the story of agriculture in Ethiopia if you're if you're not going back I don't know 1500 years so all of these historical currents um, are really necessary and what became really interesting once we finally figured out the voice and, and it became a very gratifying process was watching the history unfold on the page and coming right up to your narrative. Mm-hmm. So, so, so cutting between 150 years back, section break, here we are in the future and we can see the direct link. Um, 
yeah, I mean that that for me certainly became quite satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds so fascinating. Could you give us an example of, a, of perhaps in one of the countries or one of a particular time when that happened just as neatly and wonderfully as you've described? I think I'll go back to the, uh, the example of Ethiopia because okay. that's the chapter that almost killed me. Um, because uh, in terms of recorded history, because uh, because Ethiopia's written language stretches back so many millennia, um, you, you know, there's just so much historical stuff to to work through. And uh, the chapter is effectively about uh, the the um, the gration of a commodities exchange in in Addis Ababa. So for the first time, Ethiopia, which has been a a country that is basically founded and run by by agriculturalists um, and, and by farmers, for the first time, we would have a commodities exchange to exchange stuff like grain, teff, coffee, etc. Et, et so you can't ex- you can't understand. Or speak about, or even think about, the profundity and the enormity of setting up this commodities exchange if you're not stretching back 3,000 years in Ethiopian history, and you don't understand how this country took shape, what its interaction with the wider world was. Um, it's, you know, it, it was never colonized, but its interactions with Italy were enormously profound and enormously impactful and enormously damaging. Um, so all of that has to be considered. Uh, then you've got to roll that into, you, you know, the latter part of, of the, tw- of 20th century history. And now you've got to bring it all into the digital age. But once you start to do all that mashing and that kneading and that work and that percolating, you start to see the line. Um, and it's, it's a line that's missing from so much writing about Africa. This context free, um, soundbite type stuff that we become so used to consuming. Uh, when we talk about this continent and the countries within this continent, uh, it's so important that you tether this stuff to, to, to context. Very often, that's the colonial context. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, isn't, it, it isn't restricted to conservatives in this country, uh, the amount of people who just want to move on from talking about, conser- uh, about colonialism. That's very, very prevalent in the intellectual classes, uh, mm. in black intellectual classes outside of this country. Let's just move on. We don't want to talk about that. This is a new age. It's a new era. But you can't. You can't untether from all of that history. It just the stories don't make sense. So I agree with Kevin. That was that was an enormously satisfying element of of writing this book. So for the listeners who are planning to go out and buy this book, and we encourage all of you to, the the countries that you did choose to focus on in your essays are Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, um, the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, South Sudan, and Central African Republic, but one of the things I'm interested in that you guys did sort of throughout the book is after each chapter, you had, I guess, these, these scenes uh, from a town called Ganyesa in northwest South Africa, where there were Chinese merchants mm. there um, whose store was uh, satellite, and I think it was some of them or one of them died. Four in the, of them died. Four of them, that was it, died, mm. in the, di- died in the blaze. Can you just tell us about why you've sort of done it this way in terms of popping these scenes on the end of the chapters and and a little bit about that story. Okay, um, so the story, to, to deal with that part first. Again, um, I think Rich saw it. It was, it, might have, it was in the star, maybe 15 centimeters, uh, 10 centimeters. And we knew there was something there. He called me up. He said, have a look at this. This is... This is something. And the story said that four Chinese nationals had been burnt alive mm-hmm. in their place of work. Now, as a South African journalist and, and, and an African journalist, you know there's a whole lot going on there. You know there's a, there's a xenophobic story going on there. You know there's a story a, a, around what's called Fong Kong going on there, mm-hmm. which is the sort of uh, derogatory term for Chinese goods. Um you know that a murder's probably been covered up and you know that it's symbolic of a major geopolitical event and the event is the coalface of where China meets Africa. These are the guys who are going furthest out into the least developed areas of Africa and delivering a service that hadn't been there before. So the thing about the Chinese traders, and I'll get to the end of the story, because 95% of them come from Fujian province in southern China, is they are really brave. Um, 
because they're going up against local economies and they're going up against local traditions. So we went out there and uh, we were in the town for 10 minutes and the police trying to, tried to run us out of town. <laughs> and we invoked Section 16 and said, well, we're not going. Kevin made a, a beautiful speech about <laughs> Section 16 of our Constitution. Wow, it, was, it was rousing. Okay. I, I had a tear in my eye. <laughs> yeah. um, and it worked? Well, they, they just, uh, you know, I mean, they didn't run us out of town. They said, we'll see you guys. We had to tell the story. You're either going to help us or not. Guess you're not. See you tomorrow. Um, and, yeah, we went, we, we stuck around there for quite a while and figured out who who committed this murder. And it was um, it was the local business council, and they had paid some unemployed young guys to throw a petrol bomb into this uh, little spaza shop at Hoppers 2 in the morning, and uh, four of these guys died. Um, the the guy who, who owned that store, or, or who was the senior in that store, his brother was still in town. We interviewed his brother, and we figured out that they all, they, a, lot of, a lot of people in Ganyasa, and a lot of people in, in, in sort of this part of rural South Africa, came from what was, he, he, he said it was a small village in China called Fuching. And when we went to China, we I, I pictured something from Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I also something did. really yeah. quaint, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be nice, yeah. lie yeah. on a lie yeah. on a bamboo mat, chill. Yeah. It's nice yeah. to know you went in this story with you know Kung Fu Panda <laughs> yeah, as your you know my cultural references. <laughs> right. are shrinking. Samurai, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so I'll get to what Fu Ching actually was, but I'll mm. tell the rest of the story first because it's uh, it's all kind of revelatory, or or, or was at the time. We, uh, we, we, we got a, um, a fixer in, in China. His name was uh, Corex, and he charged us so much money, we started calling him Forex after the second day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Forex, in, uh, we were in uh, Fujian, uh, the capital city of uh, Fujian, and, uh, which was about two hours from Fuching, and, f- and Corex started making a few calls to his contacts at uh, Xinhua. He had come out of Chinese state media, and he put the phone down. He says, you guys need to lo- leave the story alone now. I said, what do you mean? He said, you can carry on if you want, but without me. I said, what, what's this about? Um, and it turned out what it was about was the fact that the Chinese Communist Party did not want its citizens to know that it couldn't take care of them in Africa. So stay off the story. So we went to Fuching anyway to, to see this fishing village that these guys came from. And it was a third tier Chinese city of 1.2 million people. Yeah, not much smaller than Joburg. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, and I think what's the reason why this story uh, it works as a series of interstitials throughout the book mm. is because it takes so many of our themes with it. This idea of migrancy, mm. this idea of people moving. This idea of people looking for a better life elsewhere. This epochal encounter between the 1.1 billion people in Africa and the 1.3 billion people in China. This idea of a South-South emergence. This idea of an Eastern Bloc or, or a South-South Bloc emerging. This, this idea of BRICS and BRICS Bank. This idea of a, of a separate hegemony uh, um, establishing itself uh, in opposition to, to the Western hegemony. Um, all of these things were sort of were, were sort of bubbling up from the story, um, but again, one of the things we tried to do all the time was look at something on a very very human scale. Mm. So you have this this murder story of four people who have died in a terrible terrible way. We've met their family members, we've met their friends, but at the same time, what their story tells is this much 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 bigger story. This idea of China and Africa connecting. At this, at this enormous period in both of their histories. Throughout the book, I think, so obviously there's a, these are a lot of big issues that people can write and do write academic papers on mm-hmm. and news reports and all these sort of things. And there are obviously the, the countries and their people are, you know, a central focus as well as international players such as China, which is, you continue to come back to, but also other, obviously the history, historical, uh, colonial governments, uh, big Western companies, you know these random sort of white dudes out here mining in the in the DRC things like that, but 
one of the things that runs through every single chapter is this idea, is stories. Mm-hmm. You've got characters, you've got details, you've got dialogue. And through these stories, like you're saying, it's sort of, it's not so obvious, I don't think, for in, in every little scene. But as you continue to read, you you feel like, I feel you pick up meaning. And there are questions that even come from the other chapters from these new character stories, right? Can you tell us about your, I know both of you just like really uh, your storytellers. That's what both of you do. But what's the importance in a, in a book like this and covering topics like this to use stories and narrative and characters? You're not going to get the message across without it. Um, we're talking about lived lives. We're talking about what it feels to to be someone who'd happen to be in this place facing this type of struggle or this this scenario facing these opportunities and our lives are stories we we narrativize our own lives memory is story communication is story there's 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 a narrative arc imposing a strictly ideological framework on 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 a book like this for example you know what we we've been asked are you guys leftists you certainly you know are you guys even capitalists? Somebody asked me. <laughs> are you even a capitalist? Are you even? I like the even. Like, <laughs> I don't know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> are you for Africa rising? Are you yeah. against it? What, what conclusions do you draw from all <laughs> of this stuff? It's like, you know what? Our job isn't to do that. Our job is to complicate your view of what the world is. That's our job. And the way to do that, I, I believe, and I, I know Kevin does as well, is to tell stories, to tell the stories of people's lives. Um, all of the people we met are real. They gave us hours and hours of their, t- of their time mm. in exchange for precisely nothing. Right? But people want to tell their stories. Yeah. They want to communicate. They want to yeah. share. Um, and, and so we felt one of the reasons we didn't quit in 2013 is out of a commitment to our characters, is out of commitment to the, to the hundreds of people that we'd interviewed. Yeah. Um, we, we felt that we could not let them down. They'd given us their time, and we were going to make good on that. Um, again, this is not commentary, right? This is not uh, an academic study. This is real people's lives in real context. And so I don't ever think there was even an option for us of not to tell us in, in, in a storyteller's way. Yeah, that's true. Um, just reading here, I see words from Achil Mbembe, and he says, in the aftermath of this book, approaches to China, Africa, and international relations will never be the same. That's, that's extremely high praise, and I everything's changed simply <laughs> since the publication of the book. She said, uh, yeah. "Yeah, it's just like life is <laughs> yeah, no the longer." Americans different. are like, you know what? <laughs> stop uh, everything. Just yeah. <laughs> I don't care about oil anymore. <laughs> yeah. We're just gonna hug. Yeah. We'll go around and hug. Yeah, and um, I'm curious what you think is how journalists, business people, diplomats, and and just other people engaging with this book and these stories, how you think it may it may affect or, or complicate or simplify their their perspective and their actions, you know. And although you said it's not commentary, is what was that an aim to to change people's yeah, I mean, either from a policy side or just the average average dudes? Um, yeah, thoughts? I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. Richard that people are calling you and asking you, you know. Yeah, look, I mean, I think you said. The, 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 the intention is to damage people's views okay. on, the con- on the continent, mostly because w- w- our cage is never rattled ideologically or intellectually mm-hmm. in, the, in this, or t- it is too little. Um, we have very set views, it's, and uh, South Africa is a terrible example of, of a very ingrained parochialism, especially when it comes to the rest of Africa. Um, you know, we tub thump about how we're, we're an African country, but we're not. No. Our connections to the rest of the continent are completely tenuous. Um, and, and I don't care who we're talking about. I mean, that, that goes from everybody inside the ANC to, you know, your average white soccer mom who's, who's driving her kids to, to Rosebank for, for a movie. Um, what we want to do is to have our, we just want to shake our reader and go, listen, this is way, way, way more complex. Than you think it is. What if I can just jump in there? I, I mean, a very, very important distinction to make is a South African does not know a Namibian, a Zimbabwean, a Mozambican like a Mozambican knows a Zimbabwean. Mm. It's it's a very different quality of relationship. We th- th- we have some filter. We have some sort of filter that that sets us apart. And 
I don't know if we think our, I mean, we could go on forever. Richard and I have both written books about this and countless articles about why we think we're exceptional. And that goes across the, 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 the race bar in this country. But we're, we're not located in, 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 in the absolute richness and diversity of this place. And I don't, I don't want to sink into cliches and I probably am because I'm raising my voice. So. <laughs> you can you, this is a cliche safe space I think, <laughs> we promote cliches yeah. there we go yeah. unscripted and other un- what is it? uncensored yeah. unscripted yeah. cliche yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll work on that <laughs> if you're just yeah. tuning in you've just missing or just have just almost missed our lovely interview with Richard Poplack and Kevin Bloom we're just going into the last portion of this and Richard I love what you just mentioned about trying to rattle the cage and, and, and complicating things that people may think are quite simple or or already had an ideologically firm stance on 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 the different re, uh, sort of countries in the continent or rather the continent as a whole and I'm curious just going into one of the countries that you guys went to maybe Namibia DRC South Sudan whichever you'd like a time where the those kinds of complexities that you're talking about emerged. Sorry to, to give you guys a specific incident, yeah. if you want, you finish the you finish the book with the story of this guy David uh, Dabalen, Dabalen, Dabalen yeah. which I think you sort of found sums up some of these different contradictions. Uh, yeah, can, can you tell you us his story? Uh, David was from the Tokana region of uh, of your neck of the woods. Yeah, so he's a, he's a Kenyan. Uh, an astonishing not, not Australia, hmm? just, not, not Australia. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was pointing to. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was not pointing to the pointing to the Australian. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenya, Australia, no difference really. No, That's no. what our book is about. The whole world. Because we've got like same. eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 what, what, what was what was so amazing about David? Um, David was a, a guy who had grown up in the bush. Um, with very little access to any of the amenities that we'd consider 21st century at all. Um, because of his brother, gets, gets involved uh, in um, conservation, uh, gets educated up to the, up to the T, yeah. meets a guy who's running this institution called Save the Elephants, uh, a, a Ponzi Brit. Sorry. <clears throat> did I say that? You did. Yeah, sorry. You did. Uh, and <laughs> you had to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, you had to get that in. Um, and, and, and starts this astonishing career as a, as a very highly valued uh, elephant uh, conservationist. Um, y- you know, he is his wife uh we spoke quite frankly about about ideas of circumcision and and what uh, genital cutting uh his his wife had uh had obviously had had that um procedure done and they were both very frank about the fact that that they wouldn't want it any other way but at the same time david had been all over the world speaking about elephant con- uh, conservation he straddled two amazingly different universes uh the universe of the african bush um, and the universe of 20, 21st century uh, fundraising, communication, um, and never saw himself as anything, anything other than two contradictory things. An African, an African from a very specific place in Kenya, but also a citizen of the world. And uh, I think for both of us, that was just such a profound encounter. Um, and, and it happened, you know, towards the end uh, of the work that we're doing. And when we were, when we're thinking about who to end the book with, uh, there really wasn't that much discussion once we got out of each other's way. Once we'd stopped thinking about, you know, you know, highfalutin literary concepts, we were like, you know what, David. Um, so, so, so that's exactly, exactly it. He exemplified all of these contradictions we've been talking about and, 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 and embodied them with such grace, with such fortitude and such intelligence that, um, it was an honor to meet him and an honor to finish the book with him. We asked you earlier about that that question you guys asked yourselves when you when you're on the banks of the river. Was it 2006? Mm-hmm. About looking for Africa's what? And towards the end of the book, you say you, you didn't find the word. Uh, what you did find amid the noise of all these binaries was an Africa returning to herself. And you continue like the current of some vast unnamed ocean. We felt the pull of the coming two billion wherever we went. If there was a name for such a sensation, it was destiny. Can you just break break that down for me? Uh, is that we know that's uh, yeah. I, t- I, t- I think that's really well written. It was personal. the reading. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. <laughs> I think it must be mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost certain. Um, you, you know, we spoke a lot about Africa's two billion. This this notion. That this empty continent, uh, this idea that Africa is teeming and full and overflowing is absurd. The continent is, is almost completely empty. 
uh, and this idea of two billion people within within the continent where roads are connected to other roads where internet connectivity and last mile connectivity is functioning we we really felt that that was ultimately the story what was where our story was going the fact that the, the content was coming into itself on its own t- on its own terms um and i think that, that was certainly one of the more profound conclusions that that we arrived at okay yeah okay. um d- destiny is uh is the future pulling pulling you or it towards itself um and and the conditions that uh we had we we felt we had we had looked at i mean what we had looked at was was the history and the present and and the weight of all of that was pushing towards destiny africa is going to be what africa is going to be you can take that as a dumb statement or you can take that as a profoundly deep statement and it is a profoundly deep statement from where me and richard sit and i think from where a lot of africans sit knowing that it'll be what it'll be you know sometimes you just have to as we've been saying get out of the way and let let the story tell itself it's it's a massive story okay we'll just go into the last one or two minutes some fan feedback saying it's a wonderful interview and where can i find it this is from nina rama it's on take a lot it's on exclusive books it's everywhere it's everywhere yeah. where books are found <laughs> indeed speaking of exclusives the launch is tomorrow if i'm not wrong 6 p.m the launch is tomorrow yeah. uh 6 p.m we're going to be sitting with uh, jay naidu and we'll have a nice long chat with him uh, but the context will be slightly different. There'll be wine and snacks. Why don't you just say that at the beginning? Just say, <laughs> just, just say wine. Lead with the wine. <laughs> just say wine. Oh God, I'm so new at this. We'll we'll tweet all the details of the book launch Please for everyone do. that wants to attend. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Richard Poplack, Kevin Bloom, thank you for writing this tremendous, tremendous book. Thank you, guys. I look forward to engaging with you tomorrow and, and as you continue this sort of process of getting it out there. Thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Yeah. Fantastic. If you're just tuning in, you've missed the show, unfortunately. Please find the podcast, tweet us, email us, just do fun things. Please share the podcast far and wide. We'll see you next week, 1 to 2 p.m. as usual. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.